Welcome to Tisky Sour. We're going to be talking about Boris Johnson's new hires. He's trying to reboot his premiership. We're talking about how Jimmy Carr's grotesque joke fits into a long history of anti-Roma racism in Britain and, and throughout Europe. And we're going to talk about establishment denial about Britain's housing crisis. Boris Johnson's new director of communications has been hired to save the prime minister. His task is to seek forgiveness from a public who feel deeply insulted by rule-breaking parties in Downing Street. His strategy is to increase the level of banter. This morning, Gito Hari was filmed entering Downing Street. Morning, Gito. Good morning. Well, you looking forward to taking on the job? I am. I am. Are you a bit cold? What's the first thing you're going to do today? Uh, That was Hari making what seems an obvious reference to the multiple visits Downing Street staff made to Tesco to buy booze during lockdown. Hari is suggesting that with him on board, a detox will begin. The new press chief has also given a pretty odd interview about his first day in the job. Speaking to a Welsh language newspaper, he said, I walked in and did a salute and said, Prime Minister, Gito Hari reporting for duty. And he stood up from behind his desk and started taking the salute. But then he said, what am I doing? I should take the knee for you. That was a reference to Hari losing his job at GB News after taking the knee. Hari then goes on. I then asked, are you going to survive, Boris? And he said in his deep voice, slowly and with purpose, while singing a little as he finished his sentence, I will survive. Inevitably, he was inviting me to say, you've got all your life to live. And he answered, I've got all my love to give. So we had a little blast of Gloria Gaynor. No one expects that, but that's how it was. Got one more for you, one more quote for you. Everyone's focus has been on recent events that have caused a lot of hurt. But in the end, that's nothing to do with the way people voted two years ago. He's not a complete clown, but he's a very likable character. He is not a vicious man, as some misrepresent him. So, according to his new director of communications, Boris Johnson is, quote, not a complete clown. Laura Koonsberg tweeted out Hari's comments, to which First Minister Nicola Sturgeon replied, So many people still struggling with the impacts and trauma of COVID, or worrying about the spiralling costs of living. But for Boris and co, it's all just a bit of a laugh. This isn't funny. In the current circumstances, it is offensive. Ash, do you think Gito Hari will be pleased with his first full day on the job? This might be a little bit contrarian, but I think that he will be. And I'll tell you why. I don't think it's an accident that the first things we're hearing from this new director of communications are jokes, banter, absurd, make light of the whole thing and present Boris Johnson as somebody who is holding everything lightly. Because think about everything that's happened so far in terms of the handling of Partygate. You had Allegra Stratton being sacked for simply making a joke at a time when we were supposed to believe that no parties had taken place. But Boris Johnson was just as angry as the rest of us were that anyone could make light of the rules being broken. Then he had these strenuous denials, which morphed into something else. You know, well, I had a sincere belief it was a work event. I guarantee that the rules were never broken, but if they were, it was entirely within the rules. All the way to let's wait for the result of the Sue Gray inquiry and then the Metropolitan Police inquiry before I can tell you whether or not I attended a party at my own flat. Now, all of those things obviously went down like a lead balloon because, quite frankly, nobody could take Boris Johnson's 
attempt to take this seriously, particularly seriously, because these were absurd lies that the public were supposed to swallow. So I do think that this is part of a bit of a strategy on Hari's part to try and neuter the story by turning it into something which is a bit more like an in-joke, some light entertainment, and take it away from what the core issues are, which is that number one, was the Prime Minister attending rule-breaking parties in his own workplace, in his own home, at a time where the rest of us were having to abide by the rules, other people were having to miss the funeral or, you know, dying moments of their loved ones. And two, to what extent did Boris Johnson deliberately mislead Parliament and the public? I think that this is an attempt to try and move things on to this is a bit of a joke and resurrect this image of Boris Johnson as being kind of tiggerish, effervescent, likes a laugh, funny. Oh, sure. You know, God, he's landed himself in it again. But that's Boris, isn't it? I think that it is actually a concerted attempt to get onto familiar territory. I accept that as a possibility. And it is very, very unusual for someone who works as director of communications to give an interview to a newspaper. They're not normally people who are supposed to speak publicly. So to go out and say that they sang Gloria Gaynor together and do that on the record, it does seem like something is going on that maybe has some thought behind it because it's not an ordinary thing to do. At the same time, I'm just not, I'm not convinced the public are going to respond very well to this all being treated as banter. Lots of people are very, very annoyed. And one person who does know that is um, a commentator speaking to Newsnight a month ago. It was Gito Hari. In the end, I would defend any doctor, nurse, uh, medic who would gather at the end of a really stressful shift and have a glass of wine together before going home. But this is not those people. These are the people who made the laws and prescribed those laws to the rest and of us other and then did fined. not live by them. Other people were fined in, and because they didn't why it's obey these toxic. laws. And at one level, it is, it is a mad diversion from big, big affairs of state. But on another, it goes to the heart of what people but, care uh, about. But are you also hearing that there might be other things that will come out which will show that there's a real problem in the Downing Street operation or has been? Well, I think we can safely assume that there were many more gatherings like this because, you know, it, it seems to be a pattern. Yeah, party Somebody central. needs to put them in sort of context and explain, yes, maybe they're unforgivable, but in the, they're also understandable at the time in some ways. If your new job is to save a prime minister who even you judge has done something unforgivable, you can see why you'd resort to random jokes and, and humour. In more serious news... The living dead status of Johnson's government is having some potentially dire policy consequences. It had been planned that Johnson would today announce a plan to reduce the NHS backlog resulting from COVID. That has been delayed, reportedly because the Treasury wouldn't sign off on the cash. ITV's Robert Peston reports. The Treasury on Saturday prevented an announcement pencilled in for Monday of the so-called elective recovery plan the multi-billion pound initiative to reduce the NHS's record backlog of treatments. Treasury sources insist the plan wasn't ready and this was a joint decision with the NHS. The NHS wanted to pause too, said one. But this is disputed by those working for the Department of Health and the NHS. They believe the delay to its launch stems from mounting tensions between the Chancellor and Prime Minister and a reluctance on the part of the Treasury to help a PM it views as a lame duck and living on borrowed time. Matthew Taylor suggested something similar. He is CEO of the NHS Confederation and was formerly an advisor to Tony Blair, increasingly getting the sense that Johnson now faces the same but more intense and short-term challenge Tony Blair had in his third term. 
namely that the Treasury is loaned to agree to any number 10 plans involving money as the Chancellor sees these as opportunistic and wasted on a dying administration. That's a problem, that delay, that the Chancellor not wanting to give the Prime Minister money or letting his policies go through because there are currently 6 million people waiting for treatment, including for cancer on the NHS waiting list. That money is needed right now. Boris Johnson was pushed today on whether Rishi Sunak was to blame for delaying the NHS plan. Because somebody has been briefing that the Treasury said this plan wasn't ready to go. And on top of that, the Chancellor notably didn't back what you said about Keir Starmer when he was asked about it last week. Do you ever worry that the Chancellor might be after your job? I think that uh, what we're doing is working together across the whole of government uh, to fix the, the COVID backlogs, which, believe me, is a, is a massive priority for us, uh, for everybody in the country. And, no doubt about the and, Chancellor's loyalty. Uh, absolutely not. And what I, what I would say is that the, uh, it, it's thanks to the investment that we're able to put in, thanks to the, the sound management of the economy, everything that we did, if you think about it, uh, that all the looking after business throughout the pandemic that's enabled the, our economy to bounce back so, so well, that in turn enables us to put the investment that we need now in the NHS. Boris Johnson says it's thanks to the Tories' sound management of the economy that we can afford any new investment. What that ignores is that it's the Tories' fault that we have such a large backlog in the first place. Even before COVID, there were 4.5 million people waiting for treatment. That's up from just over 2 million when the Tories came to power. That rise was in large part due to staffing shortages. There are currently 84,000 unfilled vacancies in the NHS. And this chart from the Nuffield Trust explains why. Between 2010 and 2019, real earnings for doctors and nurses fell by more than 8%. In comparison, private sector wages also fell from 2010, but had recovered by 2018. Ash, I've used that chart on, on NHS pay before, but every time I look it up, every time I, I get it ready for a script, it shocks me. Their pay fell by 8% in real terms between 2010 and 2019. These are the people we, we clapped for every Thursday and they've had a 10% or an 8% pay cut. Yeah. I think one of the things to understand about Tory strategy, it is punish the country and punish them some more until they keep voting conservative. So it's like a, a business who, you know, thrives on creating the situation of just like total chaos and misery and then just sort of like mops up the opportunity of all these dissatisfied customers, not, not knowing that's them that's creating the problem in the first place. And so I think when it comes to things like NHS pay, one is that it means you've got a knock on effect on the ability of the NHS to deliver some really core services. So if you've got low pay, it means you've got staffing shortages, you've got an exodus of GPs, you've got a real pressure on the number of beds available, that's going to have a knock-on effect on how quickly people can get treatment, or how good their treatment is when they are admitted to hospital, how long they have to wait in corridors, or how long they have to wait in ambulances. It has an impact on how quickly you can see your GP. Um, it has an impact on just sort of the, the quality of care, the amount of time and interaction you get. And then because you're so dissatisfied with the NHS, you're like, well, why am I tax, you know, why is my tax going towards this? You go, well, I'm going to vote conservative, you know, or maybe I'll go private or something like that. I just want someone to sort out this problem. And the cycle continues. The conservatives being at once, you know, firefighter and arsonist. 
And and I think that that's something which is quite key to understanding, I think, Rishi Sunak's approach when it comes to, I think, having this chokehold on Treasury funds and withholding it from Boris Johnson. Because everyone knows that one thing which could revive Boris Johnson's premiership is big, ambitious spending pledges. All right. People would, I think, be likely to forget or at least contextualize the wrongdoing of Partygate if there was some amelioration of the real economic pressures that people are facing, or indeed a real headway being made with the NHS backlog, a real headway being made with pay and staffing shortages. But Sunak's got no incentive to rescue the man whose job he wants to take over, number one. And number two, I think one of the things that we've seen consistently with Sunak is that money don't come for free. So he'll be the half-price wagamama man so far as it benefits him. The same with wanting to present himself as the face of furlough after having had to be bullied into it by the opposition. You know, there was a case there in terms of the personal political capital he was able to accrue. Whereas now, when you look at things like the universal credit uplift or the national insurance hike or this approach to the energy price cap, one, it signals that he is a chancellor who will protect capital first and workers probably not even second, probably some distant third. And two, when it comes to things like spending pledges, that he is sort of ideologically opposed to making them. And if he has to, he will in some way punish the very voters who are demanding it. So, okay, you want more spending for the NHS? That's going to come out of national insurance, which we know is a regressive tax, which uh, has a harsher burden on lower earners than it does higher earners. So I think that this is both short-term strategic when it comes to weakening Boris Johnson, but it also forms part of Rishi Sunak's much more long-standing ideology. My impression is that he's trying to fit in all the bad news between now and the point when he takes over so that he can save up the good news for after he's become prime minister. So do the national insurance rise now, let Boris Johnson take that flak, and then when he comes into power, if he comes into power, of course, but he's currently the favourite. I think that's clearly his plan to do that. That's when he can cut tax. That's when he can, you know, do some giveaways when it comes to spending. But for now, he's not going to give Boris Johnson what he wants, which is a big problem when what we're talking about is 6 million people waiting for treatment, people waiting long periods of time for essential cancer treatment. You know, this is costing lives. It's a question of life and death for many people. And for even more people, this is a question of quality of life. It's, it's, have you been two years waiting for an operation which, you know, stops your back pain? Things which are called elective surgeries, non-essential, non-urgent surgeries, but can feel very urgent to the people who are waiting for them. Um, let's go to our next story. Jimmy Carr has been under fire for telling a joke about the Roma Holocaust. The joke, which appeared late last year in Carr's latest comedy special on Netflix, recently circulated on social media. Okay, strap in everyone. You ready? When people talk about the Holocaust, <laughs> when people talk about the Holocaust, they talk about the tragedy and horror of six million Jewish lives being lost to the Nazi war machine. But they never mention the thousands of gypsies that were killed by the Nazis. No one ever wants to talk about that because no one ever wants to talk about the positives. Quite rightly, that gag has caused an enormous backlash. Mikey Walsh is a Roma Gypsy author. He tweeted, 
I don't know what I should be more gutted or disgusted by here. The kind of racism that us GRT people are forced to live with every day, that it's still absolutely okay to demonize us and our demise as a joke, or the reactions of whooping and cheering from the audience. The title of Carr's Netflix special is His Dark Material, a reference apparently to the kind of jokes the audience could expect to find within it, but also obviously based on the His Dark Materials novel series and its author, Philip Pullman, said this of the Carr joke. I had no idea what Jimmy Carr would be talking about in his show, which I'm not going to name. His joke, in quotes, about the Holocaust is abominable, sickening, and I'd be very glad if he called his show something else from now on. Carr does have his supporters, though. This is Victoria Corrin Mitchell, a Guardian columnist and the wife of comedian David Mitchell. While I'm here, might take a moment to mention I also love Jimmy Carr, a close friend who's made about a thousand jokes I wouldn't make myself as a stage performer, but as a man is full of goodness and kindness. He's a properly decent person. Anyway, Robo Bunny. I'm not actually sure about the Robo Bunny reference, but a properly decent person is what I want to focus on here. A properly decent person who just happens to make jokes about the genocide of a still deeply marginalized community. She's since decided to take a time out from Twitter, for good reason, I, I imagine. Also defending Carr is LBC's Nick Ferrari. Now, before I even play it, I would suggest anybody with the most working basic knowledge of Jimmy Carr knows that A, he's very funny, B, he's incredibly hardworking, C, he does go into dark areas, okay? We all know that. So this is a subscription service. It's not like he's driving around the high street on the top of a bus shouting this joke at people. So you have to pay to tune in to hear someone who you know goes up to the mark and probably beyond it. And he's called it His Dark Material. So let me get this straight. It would be bad if Jimmy Carr had told that joke to a few people on a bus, but because it's streaming to millions of people on a subscription service, it's okay. Also, what does Jimmy Carr being hardworking have to do with, with anything? That is completely missing the point. Health Secretary Sajid Javid has now commented too, do you think they should have been allowed to broadcast that? What did, have you heard it? What did you make of it when you heard of it? I, I, I haven't heard it, you know, this so-called joke, but if it, I, I, have, I have heard about it. And you know, if it is, as you say, uh, someone trying to make light of the experience of, uh, the, the, of gypsies or um, of Jewish people or others, I mean, that is not something that anyone should be... So I, I, I just, yeah, it said they never mentioned the thousands of gypsies that were killed by the Nazis. No one ever talks about that because no one wants to talk about the positives. Now, that's horrid. I mean, that, that, is, uh, that, that is horrid. And, uh, and I think you know, any... You know, I think we all have a right to react to that. And one of the best ways anyone can react to that is, is show these platforms... You know, what they think about Jimmy Carr by not watching or listening to him, and that will send him a very strong message. So, Sajid Javid is encouraging a Jimmy Carr boycott. I think that is more than warranted on this occasion. Though, of course, it might sound a little hollow from a cabinet member in a government that's just passed the anti-traveller police and crime bill. The Mirror have reported that Jimmy Carr broke his silence about the joke at a stand-up gig. They write, he was heckled by a woman who yelled, are we going to talk about the Holocaust? Carr replied, we are going to talk about cancel culture, the whole thing. The Mirror also reported these quotes from Carr. We are speaking, my friends, in the last chance saloon. What I am saying on stage this evening is barely acceptable now. In 10 years, effing forget about it. 
I'm going to get cancelled. That's the bad news. The good news is I'm going down swinging. The joke that ends my career is already out there. It's on YouTube, Netflix or whatever. And it's fine until one day it effing isn't. Oh my God. I almost don't know where to start because I think that this brings together so many strands of British racist reaction. So the first thing we have is this joke. Now, in one of the early downstream interviews that I did, I interviewed Frankie Boyle and we talked about this concept of punching up versus punching down. And I talked about why instinctively I don't like rules when it comes to art or comedy. But what I do like is discernment. And you can discern really what the joke is here. The joke is that I, Jimmy Carr, can say something so horrendously racist, but you're still coming along with me even though you know it's wrong, because I've activated what we all know to be a deeply held prejudice. And because we all know that this prejudice is deeply held and it's, you know, kind of okay and it's the palatable form of racism, we can all sit here and have a really good laugh about it, right? That's what the joke is. And so as jokes go, I don't think it's particularly subversive. It's not challenging to power. I don't actually think it holds up a mirror to the audience's hypocrisy. What it is, is that it offers license to an audience to laugh cruelly at genocide, because we've all been raised with knowledge of the Holocaust. We've been taught about it at schools. It's very much off limits in terms of humor, unless, you know, you're an exquisitely talented comedian and also probably you're from a background which was directly affected by the Holocaust. But unless you're those things, you know, you can't do it. And what Jimmy Carr's identified is like, ah, but you really want to. So there's nothing challenging, subversive or dangerous in a positive way about it. What, what it is, is lowest common denominator comedy, which is identifying a vein of cruelty in your audience and exploiting it, tickling it, making, making it pleasurable somehow. And so I, that, that's, that's what I have to say about, about the joke. And I think that a truly great comedian is aware of the nature of the laughter that they're inviting. And for me, very sadly, one of the people who who embodied that once upon a time, and now of course he doesn't, is Dave Chappelle, who when he was making the Chappelle show, I think he was working on a sketch which involved him being in blackface. I think he was like called the Blackface Fairy or something. You saw a white crew member laughing in a way which he just instantly knew. You're not laughing at me because I'm a comedian and I'm talented and I'm making you laugh. You're laughing because I'm doing something racist and as a white person, you're enjoying that. And he walked away from the Chappelle show. You know, he left millions of dollars on the table. He was blacklisted from Comedy Central for years and years and years. Unfortunately, he now doesn't have that same discernment to what is the quality of laughter that I'm, that I'm enticing out of people, particularly when it comes to the trans community. And so I think that, that, that is actually the responsibility of the comedian. That's something that Jimmy Carr didn't do. The last thing that I'll say, because I know I've been rambling on about this for a bit, but it is just because I have really strong opinions about comedy, is that it is beyond hypocritical for Sajid Javid, who stood on a 2019 manifesto, who is supporting the police crime and sentencing bill, both of which criminalize effectively the GRT community to then say, well, I think that joke is horrid. 
what that joke is doing is revealing the very sentiments which you are exploiting for political gain. Because sure, Sajid Javid or a member of the Conservative Party won't make that joke, but that is the same vein of reaction, the same vein of socially acceptable racism that they're trying to tap into with that manifesto commitment, with the measures in the police and crime bill, and also at the level of local politics as well. We've all seen leaflets which present traveller encampments as nothing short of a menace on God's green earth. And unfortunately, that is something which also extends to the Labour Party. The GRT community for too long have been seen as an acceptable target. We've all heard people say stuff. We've all heard people say stuff who would never use slurs for another group, and they do for the GRT community. And it's because unfortunately, the sort of ideology inerrant in Jimmy Carr's joke is pervasive through society. We're going to talk in a moment about how pervasive anti-gypsy, anti-traveller racism is in Britain and how pervasive it's been elsewhere. I want to stick on this joke for a little longer because there is one person who I, I normally don't consider an authority on either racism or comedy, but who did have something useful to say on this, at least from my perspective. In response to that clip, to that joke, he shared this quote from his show Trolls. It's David Baddiel, and he says, you can obviously tell a Holocaust joke that is cruel and inhumane and mean-spirited and racist, or you can tell one that targets the oppressors or draws attention to the fundamental evil of it or shines a light on the humanity of the victims. He said Jimmy Carr's joke fell into the former category, and he also reshared a joke which he said represented the latter one, and that was this. Tonight, Deborah Baum told a joke about how a survivor dies, goes to heaven, tells God a Holocaust joke. God says, that's not funny. The survivor says, ah, well, I guess you had to be there. David Baddiel says, that's a beautiful joke because, of course, he wasn't. Ash, I know, you know we've both had our differences with David Baddiel. Do you agree with me that he's kind of got this one right here? I do think he got that right. And I think that in sharing that quote from Trolls and also highlighting the Holocaust joke, which I think he's right to say is beautifully crafted and how it's put together. He's showing that the Holocaust as a subject is not forbidden to comedians, but actually it's just demanding that comedians do something which isn't lazy, which isn't cruel. So I think he is right in that. But for me, The material about Jason Lee that he did repeatedly in the 90s in blackface, wearing a pineapple on his head to mock a black man's hairstyle, for which Jason Lee has never received a personal and direct apology, is saddening. It's so, so saddening because David Baddiel was clearly able to be incredibly insightful and empathetic and standing up for the craft of comedy. And yet, where his own actions have made him one of the cruel and inhumane and lazy comics that he so derides. He doesn't know how to make it right, which is making it right with the person who was the target of that racism in the 90s and who has had to live with the impact of that racism ever since. He also followed up that tweet I just showed you by saying, of course, I am very good friends with Jimmy Carr and will continue to be. And I'm not someone who says when someone says something offensive, you should, you know, excommunicate them and not be friends with them. But I don't think that's an attitude that David Padil presented to a lot of other people who he thought may or may not have said mm. something offensive in previous years. So I do think there is a little bit of hypocrisy going on here. But as I say, I thought his take on this particular issue was quite good. 
Kirsty Allsop hosts the show Location, Location, Location. In every episode, she tries to find the perfect home for a different set of buyers, and she is presumably someone with a great deal of knowledge about the property market. What she seems to lack, though, is knowledge about other people's lives. An interview with Allsop was published in the Sunday Times, headlined, Of course, young people can afford a home. Just move somewhere cheaper, says Kirsty Allsop. The headline was based on these comments, which she said in the interview. So she told the Times, I don't want to belittle those people who can't buy a home, but there are loads of people who can do it and don't. It is hard. We've fallen into the trap of saying it's impossible for everybody. I was brought up to believe owning your home is the be-all and end-all. And in a way, I still believe that. It's about where you can buy, not if you can buy. There is an issue around the desire to make those sacrifices. It is difficult if you were born down south and have family down south. My life is down south. But if we want a family house, we have to move. If I had any roots further north and I was trying to buy, I'd do it. I don't know why Kirsty Allsop is speaking in the first person there. She is the daughter of the sixth Baron Hindlip, an Eton-educated hereditary peer. So I would submit, even if she had an aunt in Stoke-on-Trent, she would still have been able to buy a house wherever she wanted in Britain. Allsop did, in fact, purchase a house aged 21 with the help of her parents. That's, unsurprisingly, not something Allsop is keen to recognise. As is often the case with the very wealthy, she conveniently ignores the hand-up she got from her family and credits her success in the housing market to personal sacrifice. She explained, When I bought my first property, going abroad, the EasyJet coffee gym Netflix lifestyle didn't exist. I used to walk to work with a sandwich, and on payday I'd go for a pizza and to a movie and buy a lipstick. Interest rates were 15%. I was earning £11,500 or £11,500 a year. Now, Kirsty, you may have been earning £11,500 a year, but your dad was a hereditary peer, and a Netflix and a gym membership wasn't the only sacrifice encouraged the less well-off to make. She advised... I do think you have to ask yourself what your degree is giving you. Could you get a job at 18, stay at home with your parents for three years and save every single penny enough for a deposit? That diatribe was endorsed by at least one Tory MP. Kevin Hollenrake shared the article with the caption, Good advice. Kirsty Allsop's a dumbass. And I think that's kind of all there is to it. Like, (laughs) her profession is talking about housing, all right? That's that's her job. And yet she betrays such a breathtaking ignorance of the housing market that I almost think she's one of those people who turn up at a GP surgery one day and claim to be the new village doctor. And it turns out that they're a con man and they've got absolutely no background in medicine whatsoever. Because it's, it's hard to imagine that somebody who has decades of experience talking about the housing market could be this underinformed about what it is that's stopping people from buying. Because sure, you might have been on 11,500 and interest rates might have been 15%. But at the time that Kirsty Allsop was buying a house, you know, incomes and house prices were, you know, kind of like this. Now they're absolutely like this. They have diverged hugely. And in fact, you know, when it comes to other aspects of the cost of living, not just housing, but things like the cost of public transport, cost of commuting to work, energy prices that we're seeing this year, it is very expensive. It's expensive to live. It's expensive to just do those basic things that you have to do in order to keep yourself alive and and be a productive worker who can bring home a paycheck. You've then got 
the way in which the housing market then deepens the cost of living crisis. Because housing is an asset, first and foremost, before it is a home for people, it is a home for money, right, to exploit and make your money grow. You have a vicious cycle of buy-to-let landlords scooping up the housing stock and renting back to people who have not been able to save up that deposit at increasingly extracting rates, which mean that people are less likely to be able to save up for that deposit because it's a third to half of their salary going on housing with a decreasing rate of return for what it is that you can you can get for it. You then have the third thing, which is, well, why don't you just rely on, on the bank of mum and dad? Well, you might not have a bank of mum and dad, Kirsty. Some of us don't have dads who are barons, which I know might be shocking to hear. And you simply don't, don't have the ability to go, well, I'm going to live at home cost free, thus pushing all of my living expenses onto my parents and save up every penny from this imaginary well-paid job that you can get at the age of 18 without a university degree. Again, it's pure fantasy. And then you've got the last thing, which is, well, why don't you just move somewhere cheaper? Right? Why don't you just move somewhere cheaper? Anyone with a passing familiarity of what's been going on for the last 20 years could tell you that where there are cheap houses and where there are well-paid jobs, this is not one and the same. This is not a Venn diagram with a lovely, juicy, intersecting middle. These two things are far away. We have an economy which is based on uh, young people in order to get any kind of well-paid job, having to go to university and accrue huge amounts of debt. That debt also has a decreasing rate of return in terms of the availability of well-paid graduate jobs. And if you want a well-paid graduate job or the hope of having one, you're going to have to move to a big urban centre like London, like Manchester, where housing is more expensive. And then you're going to be in this predatory rental sector in order to just earn enough money to pay off this debt that you already have. People aren't shying away from places where there are cheap housing purely because, you know, they're snooty or they're snobs. Although I do think that people should have the right to buy housing in a place where they enjoy their life the most. I also think that's reasonable and good and fine. It's because of economic necessity in no small part. Oh yeah. And then the third thing or fourth thing, I've lost count. This is why I don't give financial advice, but I'm really bad at counting. <laughs> the very last thing that I'm going to say about Kirsty Allsop being a complete dumbass is even if, even if, I gave up my Netflix, I gave up a yearly holiday, I gave up coffees in the morning, if I gave up my FT subscription, if I ate gruel all year round and I saved up for a deposit and it took me 30 years to do it, because there's one bit in the interview she says, oh, you know, you could do this in 30 years. That assumes that the housing market is going to stay exactly where it is now for those 30 years. That's not true. In the, in the area where I am, which is a rapidly gentrifying area now because people are being pushed out of the trendy bits of Hackney and pushed up from the trendy bits of Islington, they've discovered the existence of Tottenham. There are some houses which are increasing in value by about 30 grand a year. So you can cut back and order Netflix and Costa and EasyJet you want. In the time that it takes for you to save that money, what's going on in the housing market is increasing a hell of a lot faster. So yes, I find it difficult to keep track of counting. I struggle to work out the difference between three, four, and five when I'm listing my points. But even this idiot 
has got more of a grip on what's going on in the housing market than professional housing pundit, the Honourable Kirsty Allsop. To their credit, the Sunday Times didn't go easy on, on Allsop. So they did a sort of similar thought experiment to you, Ash, and they, they point out that a first-time buyer who gave up a Starbucks latte every weekday, an ordinary Netflix subscription, gym membership, and two return flights to Europe a year on, jet, on EasyJet would save about £1,600 a year. However, if they moved into their parents' house and did not pay rent, they could save on average £7,000 a year. The average deposit for a first-time buyer is £59,000, according to Halifax. To save that, you would need to forego your Starbucks latte, Netflix subscription, gym membership, and EasyJet flights for 37 years. So I think the 30 years you were referencing there, Ash, that was actually said by the Times, not Kirsty Allsop. But as you say, it could be more than that if you live in one of the many parts of Britain where house prices are, are rocketing every year. Of course, this is not to say that the Times is committed to tackling Britain's housing crisis. A brief search on their website shows advice on how to avoid capital gains tax when gifting a property to a family member. And when Labour proposed one of the few policies that could help reduce the stranglehold of landowners on our economy, the Times sister paper, The Sun, ran with this. Digging deeper, Labour planning new garden tax, which could see council tax treble. In the article, the tax was described as devastating, but it is, of course, our politicians' obsession with rising house prices that's devastating to a generation of Britons. This analysis from property firm Schroeder shows how increases in house prices have outstripped average incomes across England and Wales. As you can see, in 1999, in every region, houses cost on average between two and four times a person's annual income. By 2020, that figure had at least doubled in every region. And in London, houses went from costing four times an average salary to over 11 times annual earnings. Ash, as I said, the author of that Sunday Times interview, I think, did frame Kirsty Allsop's comments in quite a cutting light. But isn't it the case that until the political establishment and the media establishment are willing to contemplate that falling house prices is actually what we need, then this is all just virtue signaling. The problem with Kirsty Allsop is that she she said something uncouth rather than that she's actually, on policy terms, these people are in agreement. Well, I'd say she's almost fallen into the same trap as Molly May, which is because of her own personal idiocy, she has put ruling class ideology in too unrefined a way and drawn the ire of social media. Now, I don't feel particularly sorry for her because it is more annoying for everybody else to listen to her than for her to get some backlash for what it is that she said. But she is catching flack because she's revealing the system for what it is in some way, which is almost a let them eat cake approach to the housing crisis, or rather don't eat any cake and then you'll magically get a deposit. So, so I do have a bit of, of sympathy with that. The thing that maybe I would say about falling house prices and the collective delusion that you can somehow resolve what's wrong and broken in the housing system without them is that part of why there is so much investment in an economic settlement, which sacrifices absolutely everything else in the economy in the interest of asset price inflation is because if you are an older person, you're approaching retirement or you're at retirement age and you're looking at a longer life because people are living longer and you're looking 
towards the period of time where you might need care, because of the absence of a socialized care system, what people have to fall back on in their old age is very often the value of their house, particularly if they are asset rich, but cash poor. So that's part of the reason why I think you've got such diametrically opposed interests between older voters and younger voters. Now I'm talking about this in terms of tendencies and the majority of each group, obviously not individuals within each group who who buck the trend and, and vote against the movement of their generation. But that's partly why, because if you are older, it's not simply always because, you know, you're a reactionary asshole who likes to see people suffer. The investment in keeping the value of your house rising is because really there's nothing else. That is your protection in old age. So you can't deal with the housing crisis in isolation. The housing crisis is also a crisis of care. Boris Johnson's disastrous past few weeks has meant that most cabinet ministers are reluctant to go out on TV to defend him. They don't want to be associated with parties in Downing Street or obvious slanderous lies. That means we've seen a lot of the B-team recently. Leader of that pack is Culture Secretary Nadine Doris, who gave this jaw-dropping interview this weekend. Have you spoken to the Prime Minister recently in the last 24 hours? Why? Why are you asking me that question? I'd like to know. Um, aren't, we've, we've communicated. This is, I'm, not, I'm really confused. Is that a difficult question? I'm just asking if you've spoken to the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours. We have communicated. Okay. What has he communicated to you? Well, that's... that's I'm not going to tell you the extent of my communications with the Prime Minister. I mean, I've answered your question. We have communicated. What is your next question? What's his mood? I'd say his mood was um, very, very uh, positive, extremely positive. I mean, onwards is one of his favourite expressions. I think he's very positive. Has he changed? Changed what? His attitude. To what? To the way he runs the government. We're told that he sent out messages saying that, I remember the quote him saying in the Commons, I've got it, I get this, about things that have been done wrong. And the implication was that he was going to do business slightly differently. Indeed, he sent a letter to backbench MPs saying there's going to be more interaction. So my question is a pretty fundamental one, which is the impression we're supposed to take now that Boris Johnson admits that things should have been done differently. And I think that's his words. And I'm not trying to change any meanings around that. The implication of that is somehow a different Boris Johnson is emerging. Is he exactly the same in your book? So your question was actually very open-ended and non-specific. But what I would say is that the Prime Minister, when he appeared before the 22 Committee last week, promised change. And I think uh, I think anybody who picks up a newspaper or reads a newspaper, uh, receives a television news bulletin can see that a huge amount of change is underway at present, particularly in number 10. Ash, I have to say the one thing that I think I'll be a little bit disappointed about if and when Boris Johnson resigns is that I doubt performance artist Nadine Doris will remain in, in the cabinet. Those years that she spent at RADA really paid off, you know? She plays the character 
of dunderheaded reactionary so well it's almost hard to tell where she ends and this beautiful creature she's given birth to begins it's like daniel day lewis you know in his prime truly going method i really struggle with nadine dorries and i think it's also quite important to talk about the two sides to her today because of what's happened with Keir Starmer and David Lammy being harangued by far-right activists peddling the Jimmy Savile smear, which is on the one hand, she is this meme. She is capable of delivering faces and media performances, which are so stupid, quite frankly, that you just want to watch more and more. It's car crash TV. And I think that she's got some awareness of it. And she's able to take up that space in broadcast media where if she'd given a more conventional performance or one that actually tried to answer questions, you know, she'd be landing herself and her government in more trouble. She knows how to create distraction out of her own incompetence. And there's a weird form of talent to that. So that's the degree in which you can go, ah, this is intentional. But then when you look at how she has conducted herself on social media, particularly when it comes to parroting uh, far right lines and even conspiracy theories. She retweeted an account which falsely claimed that you could be given benefits for having multiple wives if you're a Muslim. She was trying to hold Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, accountable for grooming gangs in Telford, which, as far as I'm aware, he is not the mayor of. She has retweeted Tommy Robinson before. And then when she was pulled up on the Jimmy Savile line directly, she was going, oh, I don't know. I'm not in possession of the facts. I couldn't possibly. So she's quite happy to both overtly and through obfuscation lend credence to far-right conspiracies. So her media performances, I think, have this double edge to them, which is on the one hand, she's kind of a meme. I find her hilarious. And on the other, I think that actually it's incredibly dangerous because she is part of this conveyor belt, which exists sort of trafficking opinion from the far right to the mainstream center. Let's actually show one more Nadine Doris clip, which very much encapsulates both of those angles. We didn't cover this one at the time because it aired during one of our live shows. But this is Nadine Doris answering a question after Boris Johnson had told that lie about Keir Starmer in Parliament. One of the things the Prime Minister said today in the House of Commons that was basically untrue, and clearly untrue, was his allegation that Keir Starmer was responsible for not prosecuting Jimmy Savile. How, how can you have a Prime Minister just repeating fake news like that? Oh, I have no idea of the backgrounds of Keir Starmer, and I know it's that It's not he, true, and the Prime I Minister know. repeated it. It's an old meme that's just repeated by... Well, you know, there were things that Keir Starmer theorists. said that someone who was the former director of public prosecutions shouldn't have said at the dispatch box. He didn't say anything he that wasn't true. He shouldn't have prejudged what a Met investigation was going to find. He didn't say anything that was untrue. Well, Boris I, Johnson said something that was untrue. He said things he that were inappropriate. The today. I, I don't believe that's the case. Well, it, it is, what, you're saying that Keir Starmer was responsible for not prosecuting? I don't know, I don't know the details. Well, that's what the Prime Minister said. Well, I don't, you haven't he shouldn't have said it. it, should he? Well, I think there are lots of things that Keir Starmer shouldn't have said. Well, there are clearly things that he said that aren't true. The Prime true. Minister Now, whether, he was, the whether they were deliberate lies or not has yet to be established. But he's clearly said things to the House that were not true. The Prime Minister tells the truth. Ash, I mean, you see what I was saying? That's both sides of those things. It's a very memeable clip. But at the same time, she is defending, in that case, Boris Johnson telling a far-right lie, which is that Keir Starmer somehow has responsibility for Jimmy Savile's paedophilia. And that's the thing, is that some of the worst behaviours that you see in the Tory party, particularly where they are pandering to the far-right or using their lines, you can never quite tell if it's through ideological affinity 
or opportunism or both. And I think that this was a moment of opportunism for Nadine Dorries, but her conduct on social media does also suggest some ideological affinity. And so that's where I think that it's important to hold two things at once. One is to sort of look at that very cultivated or of like buffoonishness, car crash TV, can't pull your eyes away. And the other is thinking about, well, what is this giving political legitimacy to? Because it does have, unfortunately, real world effects, as we saw today with the horrible harassment of Keir Starmer and David Lamming. It's getting late. Let's wrap up there. Ash, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. Best part of my week. And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into Tisky Sour tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.